I have a trivia question for you. What do Anna Green Gables, Harry Potter, Cinderella, Peter Pan, Mowgli, Pippi Longstocking, and Simba have in common? Well, I imagine that many of you are thinking, well, they're, they're characters, they're the protagonists in a children's story. Well, you'd be right, but I want something more. So my next question, what circumstances do they have in common? Do you need another hint? How about Oliver Twist? Oh, you're running away from me. You are wet. No, I'm an orphan. I've come to London to make my fortune. Most of you got it now. Yes, they're all orphans. Authors often draw on the well of having the protagonist lose their parents or be abandoned by one or more, or even kidnapped. As a reader, you have immediate empathy and you feel a sense of fear that this could be you, that your world could be turned upside down. But there's more. Someone without parents is also an incredible canvas for an author because these kids are left to their own divide. They can seek adventure, they can battle demons, and they must be so very clever to stay alive. And we know that most of these stories end up with a desired outcome, but the journey to get there is why we invest our time and our imagination. Well, what if this wasn't a story? What if this wasn't just words on a page? What if this was real life, real life at its rawest? What if this was a story of a boy at age three who's kidnapped by his father, driven cross country, told his mother has died, and then because his dad is incapable of providing for him, he's flushed into the bowels of social care, left for years in foster homes and an orphanage. Would there be a desired outcome, a happy ending that involved millions of dollars in philanthropy and forgiveness? Well, you'll have to listen to find out. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network, and this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Ed, hey Jim, welcome to Chatter That Matters. Tony, thank you much for having me. Ed, the top creators in Hollywood would be challenged to imagine a story as wild as yours and with such a beautiful outcome. And I'm glad you're here to tell the tale. The title of your book is A Road Less Traveled, An Unlikely Journey from the Orphanage to the Boardroom. Take us back to the beginning of the journey, who your parents were, and how this story all began. Well, you know, everybody who reads the book wants me to be uncomfortable, unhappy, or even hate my father. But my father basically came over, uh, was born basically in 1900, came over on the boat with his parents, uh, rose from poverty to very great success in 29 literally had buildings. He had a picture in the book, my book with him, his own airplane and so on. Lost In four years, he lost everything, everything, including his mother dying. And she didn't die of natural causes. She died of a heart, a broken heart. She was a major player in her community and the community in such difficult shape, she just passed away. And in 1933, he decided to make a big decision, either commit suicide or drive across country. Thank God for me, he decided to drive across country. On his way across country, shockingly, he stopped at a cousin's house and in two weeks fell in love with his 18-year-old daughter, 15 years younger than he was. And they just continued across country. Dad had, you know, had, had the demons. He'd lost all his money. And of course, my background now, having dealt with people who have had financial difficulties, I know the kind of demons they have. Anyway, they arrived in Los Angeles. Dad had trouble getting work, was in the middle of the Depression. Uh, three years later, uh, I was born. I was born to an unemployed father and a homemaker mother. Uh, Dad was not only a difficult fact, it, the resemblance to uh, the Hodge, you know, to Abraham was very close. He was a, he had Middle Eastern mentalities. He had, you know, women don't work. They stay in the house and so on. And of course, he wasn't providing very well. And we were tromping all over the country. Anyway, in 1939, un, you know, just unusually, my mother, very strong woman, guy decided to get divorced. And dad got visiting rights and three, five dollars a week in, in alimony and child support. 
she picked me up and took me from Los Angeles where we were living back to St. Louis where her family was. She was unwelcome there at 39. If you ride with two more miles to feed, you were not welcome. Anyway, dad had visiting rights and he arrived, drove 1800 miles across country for visiting me on Sunday, picked me up and instead of taking me to the park for a movie, he drove me back to Los Angeles, called my mother who I was a young girl and said, don't look for us. And basically subsequently he told me she passed away. And during the next couple of years, dad being a radio operator on a merchant ship was out most of the time. I lived with a neighbor lady called Mrs. Benson. And then when the war started, he was drafted or volunteered. You know, a 40 year, 41 year old man with, with a child, I don't know whether he really got drafted, but he became a commissioned officer in the New US Merchant Marines and went to sea for the entire war period. And I, I got put into the Catholic welfare system and which en- ended up me being in five different foster homes. Before we get into that, just so I, I, the listeners have context, you're three years old when this has happened, when your dad drives across the country to spend a Sunday with his son. And in, in your book, you talk about he essentially kidnapped you Absolutely. and he drove you back. But at the same time, in an article had, in N Magazine, you also talk about your mom in some ways abandoned you as well. When you're, when you're, you know, when you're a child like that and all you have is Again, when I had one parent, my father was the only parent I had, you cling to him. And he had one very strong quality. He truly believed in me, or he gave the impression he believed in me. The letters, the conversations, where they were, I was the greatest. I was the best. I would never wrong. In fact, if you read in the book, when I was eight or nine years old, I wrote a letter to him and say, I'm not, I'm not the nice, I'm not right all the time. Sometimes I, I make mistakes. Sometimes I do bad things. He wouldn't have it. So he, I had this supporter, which was one thing. And second thing is, you know, as a child, you, you sort of adjust to what happens. And even though my first foster home was a cold and, 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 and abusive, that, I had to adjust to that. You described that foster home as you were essentially a meal ticket. That you were there because they wanted a monthly no, check. No, in, in those days, that's what foster care was. You were a meal ticket, directly. They took me because they needed the money. And then my dad didn't pay the bills as well as he should either. And the welfare system wasn't as, as good as it is today. So I was passed on to relatives of the first foster home. But by the end, I f- they found a foster home which was actually warm and caring. And, and from that, I derived some positive input. I sort of saw what a good family could be. You talk about your dad, sort of his merchant marine. You weren't sure whether he actually was drafted or just needed to escape. Yeah. And, but he keeps coming in and out of your life like a yo-yo. I mean, whether you're in a bad foster home or a good foster home, when he shows up, does it suddenly change your perspective? Has it become hope? Maybe we'll get back to the the good old days, or is it just taking a child and almost snapping it like an elastic band, where you go, you know, the pendulum swings from euphoria to just such great disappointment? That that progressed over over the period of time. Early stages, when Dad arrived, it was like the sun coming in over the mountains. You know, you, you had your dad, and I cling to him because he was all that I had. Everybody else in, in my life, I wasn't important. I was the only person I was important to was my father. But that faded over time because when I got to be 15 years old and I was in one orphanage and uh, I was aging out, he disappeared completely. And there was a good reason for it. I found out 50 years later why. But anyway, he disappeared and I became a ward of the state. And that was the first signal to me that, you know, I was going to have really be alone. And I luckily got transferred to a, another fairly good orphanage. And that's what, and then by the time I was in, in the Navy, we really had a falling out. He basically disagreed with everything that I was doing. He disagreed with me leaving the Navy. He even disagreed with me marrying my, my wife because she kind of looked like my mother, I guess, which man marries his mother. By the time I was in my mid-20s, that, that relationship got to be peaceable coexistence at best. So you found out 50 years later why he left you for this sort of, I think it was four and a half years or something. What, what was the reason that he could ever come up with? What happened basically, this is a long, long story, unfortunately. I'm at the University of Rochester. I'm the chairman of the board. 
And in comes the librarian and says that the Tom Dewey papers, remember Governor Dewey? Mm -hmm. Sure. His papers came through and in his papers was a case that my father was suing the union and the ship. And in that case, supposedly somebody tried, a group tried to murder him. And that was when he disappeared when I was 15 years old. He was involved in that case. He didn't win the case, but he struggled through it for a couple of years. I never realized it until, you know, I say 50 years, more than 50, 60 years later, that that was the reason he disappeared. And that was the first step of our, you know, step getting apart where things became difficult. You talk about the University of Rochester, which we'll get to, but as you're going through uh, these series of foster homes, some better than others, you put into the sort of the Catholic school system because your dad felt you'd get a better education. But as you go to get confirmed, you find out that you're Jewish. Right. So, so, I don't find that out. No, no. I find out. I asked my father for my baptismal papers. He doesn't respond. And so they can't give me a first communion book until I get I find them a baptismal papers. And luckily, then I got I moved back to New York and, you know, I didn't have to go through or didn't go through that thing. But in one of my letters, I said, I'm a good Catholic and I really want to go forward with this, dad. I need my baptismal papers. And he never came back to me. I found out I was Jewish when I got into to New York, when I met with my father. That was when I was 10 years old. And I put that put in a Jewish orphanage. In fact, I didn't know I was Jewish until I got put in that orphanage. That sort of was a shakeup to also recognize that, that you all the Catholic. By the way, the Catholic schools were fabulous. And I, I give the nuns an enormous amount of credit. They drew the lines. They told you if you did this, you ended up in the right place. If you didn't do this, you ended up in the wrong place. And they gave me the one you know, most important rule, the golden rule. They gave it to me with the golden ruler. You know, you really learned because nuns were very strict in those days. And this education was excellent also. It's the hard knock life for us. It's the hard knock life for us. Static we get tricks. Static says we get tricks. It's the hard knock life. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My special guest, Ed Hagem. Three years old, you're kidnapped by your dad who think you think you're just going for visitation rights. He drives you back across to Los Angeles, tells your mom not to look for you. He tells you that your, your, your mom has died. All of this is going on. And then because he can't provide, you're like this pinball going through different foster homes, you end up in an orphanage. But I think a lot of people would collapse under the insecurity, the feeling that you're not worthwhile. But you somehow find a way to excel anytime you're given the game ball when it comes to education. And not just education, you're going into those schools as kind of that, you know, street rat. So I want to get a sense of how does this kid that's being just squeezed in a vice suddenly find their superpowers when you get into a situation that gives you an opportunity? You know, I found my passion in college, basically. I found my passion was putting people together to create something, to solve a problem, to produce a product, to create a program. And I guess that comes from having gone through these first 18 to 20, you know, 20 years of meeting different kinds of people and having to adjust to their their attitudes, their their activities and so forth. It gave me a second sense of, of how to get the best out of people. And that turned out to be my passion. My passion was to to help people exceed their own expectations. And I found that actually was beneficial for me. Now, how I got there, I still quest that. I look at the genes that I had and my mother and my father's genes and the the position I went through. Don't forget, everybody says these are horrible disadvantages. You know, you never learned to ride a bicycle. You could never learn to swim. You didn't have, you know, nice clothes. But those disadvantages, many of them became advantages. For example, one of the things in business, you have to learn how to change. One thing I learned my first 18 years was how to change. You go to five different, you know, public schools, going from one Catholic school schoolyard to another, 
you learn how to adapt or else. And you go from one orphanage to this, there's a rice of passage in both of them. You learn how to adapt. You make it sound so simple. And I would love my listeners because this shows about inspiring others. I mean, most people in your situation would become very withdrawn, probably drop out, probably seek some kind of support from people that would promise them things and never deliver. But you stayed the course and you decided to adapt to the system. What, what advice can you give to people? Because we're, you know, a lot of people are dealing with nowhere near what you were dealing with, but still tough obstacles, big speed bumps, sledgehammers hitting them, including things like pandemic. How did you adjust? One thing, I'm so pleased that I wrote the book and I'm so pleased that I've decided to take it public, which was pushed on me by all my friends. You got I was going to distribute it just to my family and friends. And I, I'm learning an awful lot about what happened to me. Now, first of all, I got to go back to the nuns. They laid out the world. If you're good, things happen the good way. If, you, if you're really bad, you end up in that other place. The other thing that we had as children was Saturday afternoon. We went to the movies and the heroes were there. And if they, they always did the right thing. John Wayne, Jimmy Stewart, the, you know, Clark Gable. There were very different kinds of movies. They were simple movies. People did the right things and, you know, things turned out well. So I sort of copied this and I picked up the idea of not having necessarily heroes, but extracting from certain people certain things that I was going to emulate. For example, Winston Churchill became one of my heroes in college because of his perseverance. I sort of extracted over time when I met somebody or looked at somebody on the silver screen, I extracted a certain capability and I installed it. Also, I was very lucky, and I, this is what I recommend to people, is by definition, when you go through these difficult things, you develop an anger. Anger is energy. And if you then place that anger externally, it's negative, doesn't really work. Never be a victim. Take that anger and place it toward driving yourself in the right direction. Don't be a victim. Take that energy of being a victim and take yourself in the right direction. Those are the kind of secrets that I said to me. I look back and that's exactly what I did. No matter whether I did the thing right and became a victim or whether I did things wrong and I became a victim, I just went on to what I call the two famous words, what's next? And if you take that energy and put it towards what's next, generally you'll work out much better. It's a quest of mine. I'm digging harder and harder to find it. I found these three or four things in my life. And of course, the last family that I was with in California gave me a, you know, a picture of what I really wanted in life, which was a loving family and somebody who paid attention to their children. So they treated me just like their son. They had one son, gave me piano lessons. It only lasted about six months, but there was a picture in my mind. And what I did was, and I recommend to people, is take a picture of what you want someday and put it in your head and try to go for that. You leave the University of Rochester where you're really coming in and you join the Navy, and which is interesting with your dad being in the Merchant Marines. But from the Navy, I want to talk about is you decide to go to Harvard. In your book, you describe it as the West Point of capitalism. Now, Harvard is, is the big leagues. How did you find your way in there? And how did you make that decision to put every dollar you had to pay for your first year? And as you say in the book, not having any idea how you're going to continue to pay for it afterwards. When I was in the Navy, uh, I, I took courses from the University of California, Berkeley, and I got into Berkeley Business School, but I decided to you know, pursue engineering. I spent four years beating my brains out being a chemical engineer. So I went into plastics, you know, which was the new technology at the time, five years before Dustin Hoffman, by the way, when he was told to go into plastics in, in, the, in the graduate. And yeah. I loved my job. And I was going to Wharton School of Business. I, could, I was convincing myself that I needed both business and engineering. And at Wharton School, a couple of professors, you're wasting your time at night school. And then one of my buddies at Rochester had gone directly from the Navy to this place called Harvard. And he had me up there for Christmas for a couple. I went to a couple of classes and they were off the charts. And beside the professor kept urging me, he kept urging me. I didn't have the grades or the money, 
But I said, give it a chance, give it a shot. And again, here is again, having a child, having adapted to so many difficult circumstances, taking a shot at Harvard is great. I mean, it's for, why not? And so I did it. It changed my life for sure. Arriving at college and arriving at Harvard had some of the same similarities. I was really out of place. When I came to Rochester, I had a black leather jacket. I had the wrong, I looked funny. Uh, you know, everybody was, the kids were unloading, their parents were unloading the kids. I was walking by myself. I got off the bus, you know, and I got rejected by all the fraternities my first year and so on. You know, and the same when we went to Harvard, everybody seemed to be from Yale, Princeton or Harvard. And my roommate was a Yaley. And the first thing he did, which is not in the book, is he went over to the admissions director and said, I told you I didn't want to live with a foreign student. They said, oh, Mr. Not Hajim, but Mr. Hadrim is a naval officer and he comes from California. So and he and I became lifelong friends. In fact, that I just made a talk at his wife's funeral. So, you know, from the nuns, high school, University of Rochester, Harvard. I mean, you talk about, you know, the clothes you wore, walking in, not fitting in. Did you find that with the nuns that, you know, in the schools because you were coming in from a foster home or an orphanage? Did they see you differently or were they willing to say, oh, I'm going to oh, look beyond that, That's a big secret, you see. That's why it's hard to communicate with people today. In those days, if you came from an orphanage or even you were poor, not everybody, but great number of people shunned you. So what I did as I made a decision, my senior year in college, I still remember it that summer. I, I said, I'm going to bury this. I'm never going to talk about it. Now, psychologists would say, it's the worst thing you can do. You got to let it hang out. Well, for four years of college, I didn't have to explain anything. Ed's father was a merchant marine. He was at sea. His mother died when he was three. End of story. And I didn't tell anybody. And I basically buried it for my whole life until I was in my early 70s when when the University of Rochester, when I became the chairman of the board and my wife and children just said, Dad, you know, we got to have the story because they didn't know the whole story. And even my wife only probably knew 90 percent of it. I buried it and it was very healthy for me for my entire life. I was ashamed of it. I didn't have to explain it. I never got any advantage by having it. I didn't want anybody to feel give me sympathy and give me something I didn't deserve. So having buried it, it became a very different ex experience for me. After a period of time, I wore the right clothes and talked the right language. And all of a sudden I became one of those. But I always had to work with high college was stuff. And Rochester at, at Harvard, I borrowed all the money. I refused to work because working at college really hurt my academic capabilities. I was a B minus student. That kind of annoyed me. But I had I had jobs. I, <laughs> my most my favorite job was I had to get a typewriter. So I wrote 10 typewriter companies that I'll be a representative on campus. And one of them sent me a, a sample. I think I sold two typewriters in four years, but that was beside the point. You know, it's a kind of a concept. But you got a free typewriter for doing it. Got a free typewriter. You're right. <laughs> yeah. Like one of your entrepreneurial guys, which is one thing that I, I, I'm a big proponent of entrepreneurism as well. But, you know, th that's sort of what, and, and I do believe in flow. You know, you kind of, when I was there at, at Hercules, I was having a good time and I started to recognize that being a chemical engineer long-term was not, what was the next step? And I figured I'd get my, get my education at night and then get my best of both worlds. But it didn't work. The education at night at Wharton was not good. And the professor was very straightforward. He says, a guy like you should not be here. He was very strong on that. And he said, he wanted me to go to Wharton, of course. But And, and Harvard was, you know, the, that was a, was a great shot for me. And, and after a short period of time, and I made my way, you know, I became one of, the, one of the people. I actually graduated with distinction, which has helped me quite a bit, too. Because here I'm in the combat with, you do mouth-to-mouth -mouth combat with 90 people three times a day for two years you gain a little bit of confidence. In fact, I stuttered a little bit when I went into Harvard. By the end of the particular period, I was very fluent in mouth-to-mouth -mouth combat. <laughs> Hi, this is Tony Chapman. We come back, we fast forward. Ed Hajim reflects on how he found love with his family, his career in investment banking, the lessons he's learned, and how he's investing his capital to give back.
It's Tony Chapman from Chatter That Matters, sponsored by RBC. Our world's upside down and having peace of mind, well, that seems like the exception versus the rule. Well, RBC Wealth Management is hoping to change that. They don't have a crystal ball, but they do have a team of experts dedicated to working with you to help preserve and grow your wealth and help you manage risks so that you can enjoy the rewards of your labor. Your peace of mind and financial health matter to RBC. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Hi, this is Tony Chapman. You're listening to my special guest, Ed Hagen, and we're talking about a life well lived. So you talk about your family, your wife, Barbara, your children, and this capacity to love. And that was also what fascinated me, because how did you open your heart up knowing that the first part of your life, every time you did, it got shut closed? Boy, it's a, it's a fabulous question. I, I had trouble with love. I mean, really, because you don't trust anybody if you go through what I went through for, for those 18 years. You don't trust because nobody's really that interested. But I really wanted a family desperately because I didn't have one. And, you know, again, the, the movies or the image that I created in my mind, a white picket fence, you know, the kids going to school and so forth and so on. Then, of course, I credit my wife. She met me when she was 14 and she told her mother at the time that she was going to marry me. And she basically, I ran after her until she caught me. So I give her an enormous amount of credit. And one of my tenets is is find somebody to love. Find someone you can support and they just support you. Find somebody to share your life with. She's been that person. She's really very different than, well, not very different. We have same values. We like to dance, like to travel, but, you know, she's artistic. I'm scientific. She's a very much a people person. I tend to be, you know, a a system person. It's 56 years of marriage and three children and, and eight grandchildren. So it's a success story. In fact, as people ask me, what's your legacy? That's my biggest legacy right there. But finding someone that will love you. I told her when we got married, I'm not sure that I love you, but it will come over time, I think, with me. And it did. Someone that thought their mother was dead for many years, I, and you credit your, your wife who always had the intuition that said, I don't think she's dead. You reunite with your mom. How was that? We, we spent over two months deciding whether we want to let this terrible woman in our life. I mean, Barbara's mother had become my mother. We had three children. I had a good job with a beautiful house. Why do we want to bring this person that my father said didn't like children, was an ogre and so forth? You know, we struggle with that. And then finally we decided we did. I wrote her a letter. I said, I think I'm your son. She called back and said, why don't we come up? I said, I'm going to come out and visit her. And I, I still remember pushing the, the bell at her, her apartment house. I said, this is your son 57 years late. And on the newspaper front of St. Louis Courier Journal at the time was some woman who found her mother after 25 years. Here I was finding my mother at 57 years, but I was still then a private person, which I'm not now anymore. Anyway, it was a great walking in. I knew she was my mother. You could tell that. First of all, she was the only person in St. Louis to talk fast. (laughs) (laughs) They don't talk fast in St. Louis. And second of all, she's slightly stooped over the way I am. Then finally, the ringer was she rhymes. When I'm invited to a party or somebody's birthday, I rhyme. She rhymes better than I do, and she memorizes them better than I do. So there was some character. If, if at the time I was intelligent, I would have taken the situation to a, to a graduate school and let's write a paper on someone who meets his mother after 57 years. And very importantly, very early on in the book, I say my mother was a, she was a thinker and not a feeler. That's why she let me go. My father was a feeler and not a thinker. He could, couldn't do without me. But he didn't realize he didn't, didn't understand, you know, he didn't think about the fact that I was a three year old. I needed it was a, I had to be taken care of. Her parents were not happy with her, that she basically was a, a thinker. She said, maybe the old man 
my her husband, previous husband, he was better off with me. So when I met her finally, she said, I think you did better by going off with your father. And I think I was right. She never looked for me, you know, in, in, yeah. in 57 years. Did and you I forgive her? I mean, how much time did you have with her after you met 12 her? 12 years. Great, and how was the relationship? Did you ever bring her in as your mother? It did, oh, I mean, yeah, it was- sure. 100%. I mean, she became the, the, one of the three musketeers, Barbara's mother, her aunt, and she, they're all in their 90s. They all roll, roll. We brought them to every house we took them together. They traveled together. No, it was a great experience. And she was a, an absolute character. I mean, she would say, I'm not really your mother. You know, I really take care of you. But you know, call me every Sunday. And if I miss the Sunday, long time between drinks of water. Where have you been? You know, she gave you the Jewish guilt right away. Her 90th birthday, she wore high heels, had her eyes fixed and drank martinis. So she was a character. And when 93, when she died, I was with her. She said, I'm over. It's over. You know, and she stopped eating. She was a thinker. She understood you know, and she just died. She was at 93. She was never really sick. And by the way, the funniest part of all was after she divorced my father, she married another man and had another son who never told her, never told him about, you know, me. So he calls up, hey, Phil, remember that brother I promised you? I got him for you. And <laughs> Phil and I become very close friends. And his wife and my wife are very close as well. So that was a, I've been charmed in my life because her husband died about two years before I found her and she needed something new. And I was that something new. Never really became my mother. You know, just very hard to do that. She wanted her time with me. And we talked every week. And I want to talk about your dad. He dies of a heart attack in 1971. And you describe in the book that it really hits you hard. Were you surprised that you had so much emotion surrounding his death? I I almost couldn't handle it. I mean, it was peaceful coexistence. I mean, he came to my house for the second, the birth of my second son. We got along. It was it was neutral, was fine. He still had never really accepted Barbara because she was uh, had some of the characteristics of my mother. But when he died, I, there was no closure. I was also shocked because he was a vegetarian. He took reasonably good care of himself. But what killed him was his law. He was going to lose his car. He had a number of traffic accidents and traffic tickets. And his car was his horse. In fact, I tell the story when my second son was born, he came a couple weeks early. And instead of hanging around, he got in his car, drove to California and back at age, age 68. He was going to lose his horse. That was it. He also had, he was very sugar, he was a sugar addict. So he, I think they probably had diabetes, but I think that what killed him was loss of his car. And also the fact he was not destitute, but he was very, he was, he was living, you know, I don't know. He didn't have very much money. He was living basically on, on social security and he wouldn't take any money from me at all. And uh, it probably reminded him a lot of what he could have been or even was before the, the great depression in 1929. No, no, I, I have had people lose all of their money in midlife or early life. And it's very hard because you flash back to that period. I mean, even even me in my golf game, or, or I can see you know Jack Nicholas looking back and say, boy, I can just hit that ball a lot farther. But you're always successful doing something else that's fine. When you're unsuccessful, you keep flashing back and saying, what if, what if? And it's very tough. I mean, I, I have had you know experience with executives that just been, well, I mean, a couple of my friends have died and have had dementia. And in most cases, they were unsuccessful in life. I think that's a really important thing. And that's something you got to combat because uh, that's why I have a big, a big, a big sign on my, on my wall that says, risk not thy whole wad. <laughs> I can ask you a question that, you know, he dies in 1971 and, and in his possessions is suitcase. It takes you 25 years to open that suitcase. I opened the suitcase when, when in his apartment after he passed away. And I started to read the letters that were there. He kept every letter that I wrote and I just closed it up. I couldn't handle it. I mean, first of all, I couldn't handle the fact that I didn't bring closure to my father. And he was very important to me all my life, even though, you know, he didn't abandon me and so forth. He was all I had. So I closed the suitcase up and I put it in the closet and forgot about it. And then basically, as you know, at that point in time, I did go for the first time ever in my life to real help. 
I found a wonderful woman at the Ackerman Institute, and she did something that was, was brilliant. She had me write letters to my father, then pretend that was my father and write the letters back. And I lasted about six months. And it really didn't solve the problem 100%, but it brought closure to a lot of points because I had to answer the questions I was answer, asking, and I had to do the best job I could. Anyway, so it was a rainy day when I was my, near my 60th birthday. My, wife's, my wife is one of these throwaway people, you know, you just throw it away. So I'm throwing the suitcase away unless you look in it. It was a rainy weekend, so I opened it up, and there was a set of letters that was yellow and they were different. And I opened them up and found out my mother didn't die. There was divorce papers in there and conversation about my father having to pay $5 a week and so on and so forth. After studying the whole process, we hired a detective and sent him off to St. Louis to find her, and he found her. That was a very interesting experience for me. And again, it was the perfect time in my life. I mean, if I would if I would have done it when I was 37 years old, had my you know I was working in a much harder and more difficult experience. My kids were younger. Here, when I was 60, the kids were all you know gone basically, and Barbara and I were free to handle another problem. And the problem came on at the right time. But those letters, I mean, he kept every letter that you wrote, and you went back and you read them. Did that not just? take you back to some of the most horrible times in your life where you're, you know, a young boy searching for some parent to love him. I mean, how hard was it for you to read all those letters? By the way, I kept every letter he wrote me too. Those days you did that. My wife spread them out on the table. He's totally honest. The first, uh, the first galley or the first attempt at writing my life was done by my daughter. I couldn't handle it. I'd get started into it and I'd well up and I'd, I'd pull it back and and now I can talk about it because I've been at this a year now and you can get used to almost anything. But my, my daughter wrote the first draft of the first, uh, you know, the first uh, 10 or 15 years. And then, of course, I, I got a ghostwriter to go over again. But she did the first couple drafts. I just couldn't do it. it. I mean, and friends of mine who read it, you know, you know, friend, girlfriend of mine that lives was in Florida. She said, I, I just couldn't finish it. I started crying because, you know, it really was emotional. I mean, this this little person, you know, has no mother and his father leaves him to strangers who are not very nice. I mean, it's just, it's it's Dickinsonian almost now. And I'm talking about it now the way I couldn't talk about it, you know, it was seven years ago when I started the book. Hi, this is Tony Chapman. You're listening to Chatter That Matters. My special guest is Ed Hagem. And his story is something that not even the best screenwriters in Hollywood could script. I don't want any do-overs, by the way. That's one of the things in life. People said, why not? Why don't you think of something you do better? I said, I don't want to deal with the unintended consequences of doing something over you don't know. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. We don't have time in this interview to talk about your career. I could do an entire podcast. I'll just tell the listeners that you built an extraordinary career in investment banking. You've got the four P's that you talk about in terms of your lessons learned along the way. Could you share those four P's? Let me start off with, with the, the other four words, which are important. Self, family, work, and community, which is my word, giving back. Those are the four buckets of life. And I can describe those, but it probably take too long. But the four P's, I want to pour the four pictures of the four P's into each one of those buckets. And the four P's are find your passions, find your principles, find your partners, and then find your plans. In fact, I have a whole book written on that, which was my first book, which I'm hoping to publish next year sometime. Finding your passions, which is the overused word. It's talents, interests, and it's context. You find your passions in the 19th century is by horses, and 20th century is cars, and 21st century is electric cars, whatever. But you find your passions, and you know, finding your passions is, is in my mind, something you have to do early on. The earlier you find what you really love and want to do, you're way ahead. Find something that really gets you excited, you know. And I found this passion for 
putting people together at college. I really enjoyed getting people together and finding different partners to do different things. And then I found a real passion, which was helping people exceed their own expectations. Find your principles, find the rules that you want to follow in life, find those lines you won't cross, you know. And I obviously learned the golden rule from, from the nuns and then, you know, went on. And all my life, I've collected rules, written rules. You can't have thinking rules or talking rules. You got to write them down and stare at them. Let me give you one rule that's really helped me is you can create almost anything. You can solve any problem because you don't worry about who gets the credit. And then I take that to the next step. I go even deeper. I sort of deflect credit. Try that sometime. When someone tries to give you credit, think of someone else who's helped you and deflect the credit. Find your partners. Find someone to love. You know, I found that I was only, I was only as good as the people that surrounded me. And even then, you can divide your partners up. You, you find partners when you're trying to do something that do things you can't do to accomplish a mission. You find those partners who do things better than you can do them. And the most important partner nobody realizes is to find a partner who does things that you do well, but you don't want to do. If you can find those three partners or the, that those three characteristics in one person, which I did, you can end up doing the things you do well, right, that you want to do. And that's, that's nirvana as far as work is concerned. And finally, find your plans. I gave a talk to some college students and seniors, and they said, Ed, you've given us too many ideas. That's one of my problems. Is they give us one idea. I said, sit down now and write down what you want to do and how you think you might get there. Now, why do we want to do that? We want to write it down because we want to know what's in our mind right now. So when we come to a turn in the road, it's not the end of the road. We know where we are heading. We can make a better change. And when you do that, think about the context of your life. The next 20, 30, 40 years. What are the cycles, the trends, the waves that you might be able to get the wind at your back? And that's the most important thing. Me, 1983, I get thrown out of Lehman Brothers. I take over a tiny investment bank. It has 20 million in revenues. 15 years later, it has half a billion in revenues. Oh boy, Ed, you're, you're really smart. You're terrific. No, stop. Let's think about that. During 83 and 97, the stock market was up 10 times. I had the wind at my back. So if you pour these four P's into each one of the self, family, work, and community, and I can talk about each one of those too. I mean, I, that's a balancing act. Balance is bull. Nobody's ever in balance because by definition, to be successful in any area, you have to focus. Once you focus on that area, the other areas get out of focus. Just to let my listeners know this kid from an orphan. You're so successful in business that today you're investing your intellectual, emotional, and tens of millions of dollars in your own capital to give back. Where's your focus and why does that matter so much to you? Self is the first 18 to 25 years. You got to solve who am I? Family is what's left over, you know, when you're all said and done. All right. Work, you got to be very careful of because that really makes everything happen, but you can't spend too much time on it. And then community is what we're put on. Giving back is what we're put on the, the, the earth for. The road less travel rather than on the road less travel was written by Scott Peck. And he said, love is giving back to others. And I have found it's the time in my life to give back to others. By the way, I'm a little bit selfish because I get terrific satisfaction out of it. Even this book, I got a letter yesterday, day before yesterday from a woman who said, my daughter read your book and then she heard you on a, on a podcast and she wasn't going to go to college. Now she's going to college. Come on. That's a chest pounder, right? And I've got a young lady, one of my scholarship students. She's five foot high. She just finished her PhD in optical engineering. She got an MBA in her spare time. She's a concert pianist and a concert violinist. And she stood up a bunch of fun, bunch of fun people. And she said, you know, if it wasn't Mr. Hagem, I wouldn't be here. What are you going to do when you're 85 years old? All you really know about is what you did. And luckily, I have enough things to tell people that 
you know, I wasn't planning on this, by the way. This was going to be a, a book for, written for my family. They all said, no, you got to take the public. There'll be other people that can share in this kind of thing. And the relationships I'm developing, people relate to my book. The only constant in your life is your inner voice. And I'm trying to develop a better language for your inner voice, you and your inner voice. When you talk to yourself over time, building up the capability of getting through difficulty. And that's one of the things, how did I do it? I had an inner voice that said, Ed, you can do it. You know, even when I failed, they said, Ed, okay, onward. Your memoir is beautiful, and I encourage all who are listening to read it on the road less traveled. Is there ever a time where you wake up from a bad dream or you wonder if everything you created could be taken away from you? Or are you at a point now in your life where you know you're on firm footing? It, it, it's been a transition. I, I think once I closed my, at 72, when they asked me to be the chairman of board of trustees and I closed my hedge fund, which had a very good record, I could have made probably a reasonable amount of money. I felt then I was on firm ground and I really wanted to make a major contribution in a major nonprofit area. And so I really felt comfortable. But there were points in time, you know, when early in my life, when I was pretty nervous about, about what was going to happen next. Again, the wife having faith in you, someone who loves you and says, Ed, you know, if you fell all the way, you would still come back. Basically, my wife kind of took over from my father telling me how good I am. And that's very important. And that's why you need a partner. And it's not necessarily a wife or a spouse, even a, a really good friend. And I had a couple of those. I always end my shows with the three things I take away. The first one that I really like and I think is an incredible lesson for everybody is your inner voice. Listen to it. Circumstances can be horrific, but if your inner voice says you can find your way through, you can do it. I mean, many ways you're talking about manifestation, write your goals. You know, I think that is incredible advice. The second one is the sense of wind in your back. There's times in life where we have wind in our back. And what I interesting to me is a lot of your wind has been been created by first your father believing in you, Barbara, your wife believing in you. But also, as you said, when there's times where opportunity happened you took full advantage of it. So wind in your back, I think is a great one. And then my third one is just a sense of anger is an energy. You can either choose to be a victim and be angry about it, or you can use it to channel your opportunity to change and to change and find a new course or a new path. For those three and so many more, and one of the most beautiful memoirs I've read, and one of the most articulate and passionate people I've ever talked to, I'm so honored you were a part of Chatter That Matters. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thanks for the kind words. By the way, what you've just said is going to push me forward. You're one of the people, I've, this is the kind of feedback I've been getting from people that they really want me to, to keep talking about it. Because, and then that's what's left for me. If I can change some young people's lives, you know, that they'll get over a few of those bumps early on. Uh, that's, that's the mission. Joining me on Chatter That Matters is Mark Beckles, who's the Vice President of Social Impact of RBC. Mark, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Tony. Thanks for having me. So Ed Hagen, what a story. He's kidnapped by his father at age three, told his mother's died. His father soon abandons him to a series of foster homes and orphanages. But he finds a way to overcome, to learn the value of self-reliance, perseverance, and most importantly, finding a foster home that brings him both love and security. So it's powerful and a unique story, but the consistent theme is finding people that believe in you, isn't it? Each of us, when we think back of our own personal journeys, we've all had a leg up uh, from someone. We've all had an informal mentor, 
someone who's uh, spent incredible amounts of time with us, time that we haven't earned. In the normal course of things, uh, even with parents, usually there's a family member who steps up, a cousin, an uncle, an aunt, who really becomes that, that other parent that we didn't have, that, that other coach. In the context of young people who are born into very difficult uh, circumstances, who are part of the formal care system, or who perhaps uh, have been abandoned or have been orphaned and are raised by others, those young people need uh, support. You know, the fact that this young man elected to pay it forward as a result of the kind of support that he received is just, is just remarkable. Canadians do it every day. There are some Canadians that take it to the next level. Mark, tell me about Future Launch and what you're doing to help Canadian youth find and pursue their path in life. Yeah, thanks, Tony. You know, we've been executing this program now for the last almost five years. The program has reached just under four million young people. That is to say, four million young Canadians have benefited from the programs that we fund through Future Launch. What gives us the greatest pleasure is some of the stories uh, that you just read. I mean, there are countless other stories, particularly uh, stories that have emerged through uh, through COVID-19, where young people who uh, were dealing with mental health crises or didn't know where they would get a summer job to be able to fund their education uh, in the in the fall or young people who were just trying to build job ready networks, didn't know where to turn. Uh, young people who were trying to get in, into, for example, you know, the tech space or financial services or agriculture or the nonprofit sector who did not know where to turn. They looked to RBC Future Launch's website to figure out a navigation path to give them even more comfort uh, toward driving to the careers and ambitions uh, that they had. Building these kinds of solutions and the utility that we've built and putting that utility in young people's hands for them to be able to navigate and have a sense of hope and confidence about the future has been what's fueled not just me, but the entire uh, team of individuals that I have the pleasure of working with every single day so that one day we can create a, a scenario where some young person or a group of young people, because of the benefit that they have had, decide to pay it forward at scale. Mark, this is a personal ask, but you wrote an article titled Weeping on the Inside about the senseless death of George Floyd. Do you feel it's important that executives of your stature share their feelings in this manner? You know what, Tony, I, w- I would say the answer to that question is yes. I think too, too often we're scared to be our authentic selves and to share how we really feel for fear of it becoming a career limiting action or being judged or being perceived uh, in a particular way by those whom you think need to see you in the alternate way so that they can actually be a part of your circle and help to move your career forward or to so- support your ambitions, whatever. I just find that there increasingly is truth in healing or healing in truth, I suppose is I, the way I should frame it. And I felt at that point in time, I needed to just tell the absolute truth around how I was feeling. But I knew that that wasn't just my voice. There were countless others that felt just like me. It's given people permission to be able to also tell their own story, how they're feeling. And in that process, put a whole bunch of others on a shared journey of learning so that, you know, they they better understand me and can actually support me in ways that they hadn't thought of uh, before. You know, we're a whole bunch of us going back to the office uh, now. And, and quite frankly, the challenges for me are really around 
you know, microaggression that I may feel walking to the train or walking from the train uh, to the office when I walk into the to the building. COVID-19 and being a home is shielded folk that look like me from that kind of behavior when it's waiting for me again. And so by telling these stories, I'm able to help folk understand this is the world in which I live. You can be helpful to the extent that you know the issues that actually affect me on a day-to-day basis. Thank you again for joining me on Chatter That Matters, and I hope we chat soon. Thank you, Tony. Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman has been a presentation of RBC. It's Tony Chapman. Let's chat soon.